This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. It's easy to get a song stuck in your head. Once, when we were returning from a road trip, Aaron and I were searching the dials, trying to catch a radio station to help pass the time as we headed down I-40 somewhere in Arkansas. Now, mind you, it was not satellite radio. No serious FM or streaming going on in the 2003 pickup that we were driving, but real old-fashioned FM radio, hitting the search button until it landed on something we might find decent. We hit a jackpot when we heard a few notes of a familiar country song. My wife is a fan of throwback country music, and we landed on Tammy Wynette singing Stand By Your Man. An oldie but a goodie, fitting for the drive in the pickup with my wife and I enjoying the summer Arkansas views at 70 miles per hour. The drive continued and the conversation as well, with Miss Wynette's familiar course accompanying us as the soundtrack, Stand By Your Man playing in the background. And it played, and played, and played. Finally, after about 10 minutes or so, we both came to the realization, Stand By Your Man was still on. Now, the original song was only about two and a half minutes long, and this was not the techno remix or some extended cut by any means. It was the old-fashioned traditional country classic. But by about the 15-minute mark, we were really confused. In fact, we switched stations for a bit, only to come back to hear Stand By Your Man still replaying on repeat. The signal was not super strong, and eventually it faded into static. Miss Wynette still singing, perhaps even to this day. She was on repeat. It never stopped. It was on a constant loop. We think it might have been a station error or perhaps someone keeping something playing on a frequency to fulfill some FCC quota or requirement of no dead air space lest they risk losing the channel. But we never did come to a concrete reason for what we heard. But we did hear it. And it was embedded in our brains for days. It's been about five years since that day and the song still gets stuck in my head every now and then. Stand by your man. Sometimes you realize things in life seem to be on repeat. Whether it be a tale as old as time, or a glitch in the matrix, or a deja vu, deja vu moment, or history repeating itself, things at times seem to be all too familiar. As we move through Acts, the apostles had been uber busy, serving tables to meet the daily needs of widows, both Jews and Hellenists. And there were some complaints about how things were being done, so they humbly handed it over to seven men full of faith, good reputation, and the Holy Spirit. This was not just a soup kitchen opportunity or a food truck to keep running. It was a ministry that impacted many. And those appointed and prayed for with the laying on of hands took it seriously. And the impact was profound. The widows had their needs met. The apostles gave themselves to prayer in the word. The seven newly appointed deacons found ways to serve in their wheelhouse. And the church multiplied greatly. Now we zoom in to look a bit more at one of those seven servants appointed to serve at those tables. And things begin to look all too familiar. Some repeats we see in the life of this new character that enters the story of the early church. How interesting it is to see the patterns of how Jesus uses those who are willing and ready to serve. Here I am, send me. As well as to see the response, both positive and negative, that seems to be repeating when the world around hears the message and sees the impact of the gospel live in center stage. Lean in for Stephen's close-up in Acts chapter 6. We read in Acts 6, verses 8 through 10, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilician Asia, disputing with Stephen. 
and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. While appointed to serve in a practical ministry like serving widows at tables, the apostles had asked for men of good reputation, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was filled with Jesus, full of faith and power, and even he did great signs and wonders among the people. Notice something repeating. The apostles were mostly just good old boys from Galilee, country folk, fishermen, men of the community, not the scholars and high religious elite of those days. And Jesus chose them, and Jesus used them, and Jesus worked through them. And those down-to-earth apostles did not get all snooty and feel that they were the, quote, chosen, or that they somehow had a monopoly on being used by Jesus. No, they passed it on. They believed fully, hey, if Jesus can use us, God can use anyone. Perhaps it was these humble men that, that Jesus chose that Paul had in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God chooses wisely and uses not the best and brightest all the time. And when we do think that we have it all together or what it takes, when we believe that God would be wise to use us, often the Lord will skip over as decide to use someone else so that he gets the glory. But we see this repetition that Stephen is not some high religious elite, but he believes in Jesus and he has the Holy Spirit. And even while working the tables, the Spirit is using this guy. Great signs and wonders happening through this guy, all to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's something God can and will repeat. In the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, we read that Hanani the seer came to King Asa, who had turned to the Syrians for help, putting his trust in man's strength and resources and abilities rather than the Lord. And Hanani challenged him and us with this, Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is looking. He has his radar on, scanning back and forth. The whole earth, it seems almost rare to, for him to find it, wanting to show his strength through anyone who is willing, whose heart is loyal to him, not for their own glory or their own kingdom. Jesus had found that in the apostles. They were doing great signs and wonders among the people, but it now repeats through Stephen too. Great signs and wonders through him, too. We see some disciple-making going on here. Jesus is now moving through the next generation of leaders. They have heard the message of Jesus and responded. They are being called to ministry, and they are being used by God as well. Stephen is the vessel in this scene. It says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilician Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. We already saw in the book of Acts that when the apostles, like Peter and John, had stepped out and done great things in Jesus' name, that the religious leaders rose up against them. We saw that they were retained and later put in prison, threatened, beaten, told not to preach in Jesus' name. But now this group is coming against Stephen because they see him as a threat, a convincing conduit of Jesus' message. The fire of the gospel is spreading, and they're trying to put it out, and they're focusing on Stephen now. Jesus told his disciples the final night before the cross, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Telling them that though they would be used by him, 
they would also be opposed as he was. And we see this is now repeating with the next generation too, with Stephen. It was not an apostle-only promise, if it can be called a promise. The opposition that came to Jesus will be sure to follow those who follow him. Paul would later experience this himself, as he recalls when writing to the Philippians all that he had let go of, of his own righteousness to embrace the imparted righteousness of Jesus. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. We fellowship with Jesus in the hardships that come from following him. This world loves sin and darkness, and we are light exposing the darkness. So they push back against Jesus, but by pushing back against us, since we seem easier to get to. Interesting that Paul would later write about the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, since in this scene we read about in Acts 6, Paul, and at this time he's still called Saul, may actually be here in these verses. Check it out. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. This group, the synagogue of the freedmen, they're called. And Luke's, Luke writes for us that it included many men from these places. These were some smart guys, scholars, the brainiacs of those days. Some were from Alexandria in Egypt, a huge center for scholarship in those days. These guys knew their stuff and would be pretty convincing, intimidating, I imagine, to debate with. And yet Stephen holds his own. Not because he had all the schooling and influence that these guys did. No, just walking with Jesus in that moment, used by him. But these from the synagogue of the freedmen disputing with Stephen and these places, and listed there, it says others from Cilicia. Now this is interesting. Tarsus was in the area of Cilicia. Does that sound familiar? Familiar. Saul was from Tarsus. Is it possible that Saul, who would become Paul, was one of these guys bullying Stephen? We do find out from Luke later that Saul is at least nearby at this point, because when they finally turn violent against Stephen, Saul is there consenting and watching the robes of those who do the dirty work. If Saul is here when Stephen disputed with them, and since he is there in chapter 7 when Stephen gives an awesome sermon, Saul heard it, though he did not respond to the message that Stephen gave. But I imagine that message, those truths, the wisdom of the gospel, I imagine it repeated in Saul's head and heart over and over as time went on. And eventually, it clicked. Saul had invested a life in a Judaism that rejected Jesus as Messiah. It took a while to digest and for him to be honest about it in his whole own life. Ultimately, he would repent, but this message was something that needed repeating. The gospel may need to be repeated to people. They may not respond right away. And even if we only have one chance to share it, the Spirit can and will bring it to remembrance, working it over and over again, desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He may even send other messengers to repeat that same message that we've shared, and they can say, wait a second, I've heard this before and then their heart can be moved closer to receiving Jesus. It's amazing what the Spirit will repeat to bring people to repentance. I was listening to a pastor online, and he shared a story about a time when his cell phone was just ringing all the time, hundreds of calls a day. People had his number and called whenever they needed something, which seemed to be all the time, and it got really out of hand. So he eventually, he got a new phone number and enjoyed a little bit of quiet and focus and was much more discerning about who he gave his number to. 
Well, sometime later, he got an email. A woman had gotten the pastor's old number, since phone companies will recycle old numbers and over time assign them to someone else. Well, the woman who got the pastor's old cell phone number was getting calls all the time now, and now her phone was ringing off the hook, but it was not for her, it was for this pastor. When she answered, people kept asking for pastor so-and-so. So eventually, she got curious about who this pastor was and why everyone seemed to need to get a hold of him all the time. So she looked him up online and she started listening to his teachings out of curiosity. And eventually, she got saved. And she emailed the pastor sometime later to let him know. That's the power of God's word. And also a reminder of just what the Lord will use to reach people with the gospel. This pastor canceling his phone number, some other woman in another part of the country getting the phone number, and then her listening to the sermons online and eventually giving her life to Jesus Christ because she heard the truth of this word. Now, things may have changed in the last few years with the rush of the internet and social media, but according to a Barna study that was published in the early 2000s, almost half of Americans who became Christians did so before they turned 13 years old. Of that group, half were led to Christ by their parents, which is understandable since they were quite young at the time, and another, one in five, led by some other friend or relative. Those who became believers prior to, prior to becoming a teenager, very few accepted Jesus in response to a minister's prompting, just about 7%. And only one out of eight said it happened at a special event like an outreach or something else. You can see most of those who received Jesus as children heard from someone close to them. The study also found, though, that about one-third of Americans who became Christians give their lives to Jesus between 13 and 21, those middle school through college years. Since these are very social years, about one out of five said a friend led them to Christ. And about the same number, one out of five said it was their parents who walked them through the decision. The same proportion, about 20%, said an event, like a special program or an outreach or a concert, that that was the trigger for their commitment to receive Jesus. And about who decided for Christ as a teenager, 16% listed a relative other than their parent as a primary influencer. And only one out of every 10 Christians who accept Christ during the 13 to 21-year-old age range said a minister was the main influencer or a part of that decision time. So while preachers may give those gospel calls and presentations at the end of the sermon, statistics still show that it's usually closer with the relationships. And in those teenage years, it's those relationships around them, whether they be friends or family or, or people that they're related to. Now, less than one-fourth, about 23% of Americans, according to this study, who are Christians, said that they came to faith after their 21st birthday. That means one out of four, less than one out of four, will receive Jesus after they turn 21. In this group, most were led to Christ through a friend, the majority, almost 20%. But mass media experiences were second at 14%. Now, I imagine it's probably an increased over time with social media uh, on the rise. And the same with a live event. About 15% received Jesus in that adult range at a live event they attended. A relative was also a close contender. About 13% who came to faith as adults said a family member was influential. Ministers were responsible for leading one out of every 10 adult converts to Christ while parents of adults were named as the evangelistic influence by one out of 12 of those believers. The results of that Barna study have likely changed some based upon culture, generational shifts, technology, and the general state of the times. But we saw that it was not a one-size-fits-all approach to who will be used to share the message of the gospel. And while we are called to be fishers of men, not all will get caught in the net at the same phase and stage in life. And even those stats showed that much of the time people will come to know Jesus through those primary relationships that mark that season of life, even more than the staged church events or the strategic altar call at the end of a sermon preached by a minister. 
We are all to heed the call of going into the world to make disciples, to do the work of an evangelist, as Paul told Timothy to do. He wants people saved more than we even want them saved. And whether he uses you or I or a podcast or a preacher or a changed cell phone number, it does not always happen the first time around. So we are to keep sharing, to not grow weary in doing good, knowing at the proper time we shall reap if we do not lose heart. While Saul may be hearing Stephen here in Acts chapters 6 and 7 and does not make a response at this point in time, eventually Saul will, and he will become Paul. The Spirit and the Word repeating in his heart and conscience until he finally responds on the road to Damascus. Well, this group who is opposing Stephen realized they can't win any debates to discredit Stephen. This guy had wisdom by the Spirit, and they could not match it. So they take things to the next level. And it seems a bit of a repeat, sort of like they had done with Jesus himself prior to the crucifixion during his botched and illegal trial. Listen to Acts 6 verses 11 through 15. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Some things seem to be all too familiar with this, very similar to what they did with Jesus some months or a few years earlier. They first induced some men to speak lies, to promote a false narrative. You think fake news is something new today? No, not at all. Jesus had it in his day and especially in attempts to bring him down. And here it repeats. They secretly induced some men to say some things. The word induced is the Greek hupabalo. The word means to throw or to put under. It denotes suggesting or whispering. It means to throw someone under the bus. It means to instruct privately or induce someone or bribe them in private to falsely testify. There are closed-door meetings going on at this point in the book of Acts. Total conspiracy going on with Jesus and now with Stephen. Oh, the whispers. We have an enemy as well, and we do not battle against flesh and blood. And the lies and the plots that he instigates privately, the whispers that he makes to get people to respond or react or believe thing, things about others, not even true, the accusations. Perhaps you have experienced this, just going down rabbit trails, a thought, a lie about someone, and then you start to believe it. And the story builds in your own heart and your own mind. The accusations grow and grow, and in no time, you're yelling, crucify them. Your heart is totally hardened. They are tried, condemned, and hanged, at least in your own heart and mind. We know that the enemy hates all things of God that bring glory to God. And one of those things that brings glory to God because it is a picture of God's relationship with us is marriage. And in talking to a number of husbands over the years, I've seen a plot of the enemy wanting to tear apart marriages or at least rob and steal peace, joy, and unity between husbands and wives. And I'm sure there is a she said version of what I'm about to say. But the he said version is that sometimes the enemy whispers and makes up a story about the wives just drops a thought, and some unrelated conflict or problem or issue with will somehow end up being the wife's fault, even though she has nothing to do with the issue or the problem, the anger or the bitterness or resentment or hostility. It will build and then spill out passively or not so passively on the wife. And Satan loves to make the wife the scapegoat of all the issues or problems that the husband is facing, whether it has to do with the home or the marriage or not. 
the lawnmower won't start? Well, if she had not had to get our kid braces and spend my hard-earned money on a dental issue, which bad teeth come from her side of the family anyway, then I would have more money in the account to just pay someone to mow the lawn and I could be in watching some football right now. The wife has nothing to do with the lawnmower. But somehow the enemy secretly induces the husband to believe that she is to blame for all of it. And he believes the lie that Adam believed and began spreading generation after generation ever since the gospel or the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.12, when Adam said, Lord, it was the woman you gave me. It's her fault. And it's your fault because you gave me to her. A defective model, obviously. If we could trace back the patterns of resentful thinking in the home and marriage, it starts with some lie. Someplace. For he who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds, obtains favor from the Lord. I'm sure there is a she-said version of it too. Blame it all on the guy, feeling justified for choices or feelings or hurts or patterns because, quote, if only he were more godly or more spiritual or leading the way that he should. It's true, our choices can and do impact those around us. But scripture says in Romans 12, 18 in the NIV, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. At least on your part, you cannot abandon ship or go down that path. The prophet Hosea was not justified in abandoning everything because his wife chose to go back to her old ways. If you've not read the story in the Old Testament, it's pretty crazy. God calls this prophet Hosea to take a harlot, presumably a former harlot, as his wife. And he does, and they start a family and everything. And then she goes back to work. How heartbreaking for Hosea. And eventually Hosea is asked to go buy her back once more, his own wife, a living parable and picture of God's love for his people, his committed, his unconditional, God's unwavering love. If God gave us perfect people to do life with, it would probably be much easier most of the time. But we are called to do life with broken people, and we are broken as well. And the accuser of the brethren will whisper things in our ears, secretly induce us to agree to a whole thing that may not even be true. And if we buy in and follow through, things can and do get really messy. Careful when the enemy starts whispering untruths or half-truths or twisting the truth, inducing you to believe and begin reacting, emotionally or otherwise, about something that holds no weight to it in reality. Back to Stephen. The lie that they were start spreading is, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then once those murmurings, those first murmurings take root, it begins to spread. We read, they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So it goes from, Well, I heard this about this about him and that about him, to standing before the council with false witnesses repeating it even elevating it from just blaspheming Moses and God to Stephen does not stop speaking wrong things about the temple and the law. Jesus faced similar lies and charges. It's repeating here. Just months or maybe a few years earlier, and it repeats. That is the thing about our enemy. There are really no new lies. The lies repeat. The tactics go over once again. We just need to be smart and to recognize them. This crowd does not recognize Jesus, but they have also cast off the authority of God. They have, for the most part, elevated their temple and their interpretation of the law to be of more importance than anything else. And the gospel of grace, as Paul would eventually expound upon, showed us that the law was a tutor meant to point us to our need for a Savior. 
Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled it perfectly, so that he who knew no sin might become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But this group there in Acts, it's still believing the lies and clinging to their idols that are more important to them. Anything we trust in for righteousness or salvation above Jesus is just that, it's an idol. And they will not lay down their idols, but instead are being riled up by this accusation that Jesus has told Stephen, who is telling others, that the law and the temple will be destroyed? Well, no. But in truth, the law and the temple are no longer central because Christ is. So they can let go of them and cling to Jesus fully. In Christ alone we find our salvation. And that makes some here in this scene uncomfortable. They want to believe Jesus plus something. But it's by grace through faith. So Stephen is sitting there listening to all those lies. And most of us would be livid at this point, defending and cutting back, putting up a fight for sure. How can you say that? You are wrong, and let me prove it to you. But what do we read here? It says, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, at Stephen, saw his face as the face of an angel. Not sure exactly what that face looks like, but there is no stink eye going on here, no flared nostrils, no if looks could kill. No, his face is the face of an angel. Peaceful, I think, calm, focused. I would not go so far as imagining a halo over his head, but something about how he looked at this moment did not match the situation. It was as if he was from another world, protected in this situation, a hedge of protection around him, like an angel in this den of wolves. In the midst of his accusation, Jesus remained silent too. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The peace of God somehow guarding him in that moment, as it has previously in the midst of storms, he even sleeping in the middle of the tossing and the turning of the wind and the waves. And it repeats here with Stephen, because the Spirit of Jesus is upon him. This was not natural in this moment. People will not react this way. But Jesus did, and now it repeats with Stephen because Stephen is in Christ. It's amazing how we can live, react, respond, perceive differently when we are in Christ. A storm may rage and we can sleep. Accusations may abound and we can have peace. Curses may be aimed at us, but we can bless instead. It's not us, but it is Christ in us. And that is what Stephen is experiencing in this moment, because his grace is sufficient for us, and his power is perfected in our weakness. Stephen bears the, quote, face of an angel here. We, too, are image bearers of Christ in this world. We remind the world and the enemy of him, of Jesus. And as image bearers, we are opposed. Because we remind all that opposes God of God, we become the targets. The opposition and the persecution and the hate and the resistance, it repeats with us as image bearers of God. Aaron and I performed in some community theater productions a few years back, and in one show, one of the performers in the production, he had a twin brother. The twin was not in the show, but in conversation at some point, it came up that he had a twin. And some months after the production was done, we were out in public, and we saw who we thought was the guy that we knew. And we went up to say hi, only to be met with a confused face. It became quickly, apparently, that we had the wrong twin. And yet we approached the unknown twin so boldly and directly as if an old acquaintance, because he bore the image of someone else, someone who looked just like him. So last summer, we were at a wedding, and we saw one of the twins, not sure which one. 
but it had been quite a while since the production that we performed in almost maybe almost a decade and the twin did not recognize us so we weren't sure if it was the twin that we knew who just did not recognize us seeing us in a different setting and circumstances about 10 years later or if it was the twin that we had mistaken some years earlier for the twin that we knew and had performed with some years earlier well after a briefly awkward hey are you so and so or are you the twin brother we figured out it was the right twin, the one we had known 10 years earlier. But the confusion, one looked like the other. And we approached them both at different times as if they were the other, approaching them as if they were the other person. Not only do we look like Christ and get mistreated or based upon that resemblance, but Paul also wrote to the Corinthians that we smell like Christ too. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? We smell like Christ. We remind them of Christ. And to some that smells wonderful, but it's not us, it's Jesus. To others, we smell awful, reminding them of Jesus whom they're trying to avoid. It's a tale as old as time, and it will repeat again and again. Each generation of Jesus bearing the cross of Christ. Just like Stephen is here, though he appeared as an angel, none of it moving him. But now Stephen has their attention and the chance to speak. And though we won't go too far through chapter 7, we'll save that for next time. Take a look at the first few verses. Acts 7, verses 1 through 3. Then the high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Stephen repeats for them some of their history, and the choices of what he repeats have a common theme. And he says the Jews as a nation had a long history of not recognizing their deliverers, those God that had sent the first time around. But God had to repeat for them some things before they got the lessons. And on the second time, they eventually got it. So Stephen uses a few examples from their own history about some repeats that God did to make sure that they got the message. And on the second time around, they usually got it. And it will be the same with Jesus. The Jewish nation rejected him in his first coming, but will embrace him in his second coming. So Stephen calls four witnesses from the Old Testament to the witness stand to testify on his behalf in Acts chapter 7, examples that they had a history of missing it the first time around, but that God was gracious to repeat himself until they got it. As Stephen calls to the witness stand Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Solomon, he'll start out with Abraham as we just read. He came to the land but had no inheritance. Abraham's descendants would return a second time after exile in Egypt, and on that second chance, they would take the land that God promised. Abraham would also try to have a child the first time, but he did it in his own strength, through Sarah's maid, Hagar. But the second time, it was the Lord's doing, and the miracle of Isaac as the son of promise, God repeating the opportunity so that Abraham and Sarah could obey in faith and get it right for the fullness of the blessing. Stephen will also use the example of Joseph. After being sold by his brothers into Egypt, Joseph would be raised up and used by God to prepare for a famine. His brothers would come the first time to get food in Egypt and not recognize Joseph, their brother. But on their second coming, Joseph would be unveiled to them, and there was repentance and reconciliation, 
something the repeat opportunity allowed for Joseph and his brothers to experience. Stephen will also mention Moses. Moses will be preserved by God as the other children of the Jews are destroyed, saved via a basket in the water to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And though raised as a prince of Egypt, the first time he tries to take steps to lead his own people, the Jews, things do not work out. Him doing it in his own way, murdering an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves, Moses' own people. Well, the plan backfires and Moses flees into the wilderness, 40 years there. But a repeat opportunity comes to stand, he comes to stand up for his Hebrew brethren after seeing the burning bush. He goes to bat for them and lead them into the wilderness this time, someplace that he's had lots of experience in. A repeat journey, but the second time, not as a fugitive seeking refuge, but as God's chosen leader for his people, someone who was given a second chance. Stephen will also speak of Solomon as well, the son of beloved King David. King David will want to build a house for the Lord, a temple to honor the God of heaven, a permanent place in contrast to the portable tabernacle that they'd worshipped in since the days of the exodus from Egypt. But because of the blood on David's hands that came with taking the kingdom, the blessing of building the temple would not fall on David. But his son would build the temple, using all that his father David had provided, a repeat opportunity denied for the father, but granted to the son. Stephen will take the floor and repeat the stories of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, and Solomon. Stephen there, with all the abuse and the opposition mounting against him, he there will face like an angel, will move into repeating their history, a history that they all knew so, so well. But this is not just a Sunday school review lesson. Stephen has a point to make, that God had often in their history needed to do repeats because they got it wrong the first time. They missed what should have been clear or obvious the first time. They rejected the olive branch extended by God the first time, and it took a repeat to finally see what God was wanting them to see from the very start. There are some who have written off the Jewish nation as part of God's plan in Scripture, seeing the church has replaced Israel scripturally or prophetically. They say they missed their Messiah the first time around, so now the church has stepped in and will fulfill Israel's role. It's a spiritual Israel. But how fitting for a God who throughout history has worked with a nation who did not always get it right the first time. They needed a repeat to get it right. Over 500 years before this scene that we read, this hearing with Stephen before the religious leaders, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah wrote a verse that many see indicates a coming repeat. Zechariah wrote, And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. John quotes that same verse in John 19.37, As the Jews stood at the cross after crying, Crucify him in regard to their Messiah, they looked upon him whom they pierced, predicted by Zacharias some half a millennium earlier. But much prophecy may have a near and a far fulfillment, a repeat element, the first applying to Jesus' first coming, and a second fulfilled at his future repeat coming. And there are theologians who see Zechariah pointing to a future time, a second coming when God will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as a son as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That then in the future they will realize the second time when given a repeat that Jesus was indeed their promised Messiah and they missed him the first time. But they will mourn for him. They will grieve for him. 
It will be a spirit of grace and supplication poured out once more, bringing dry bones to life as Ezekiel wrote about in his prophecy. Perhaps that is the message that Stephen has for them here in Acts 7. His final message, unfortunately, but I'm getting ahead of myself, and we'll take a look at that next time on the podcast. Aaron and I have flown a lot in our years of being married, but our first trip together was on our honeymoon. As missionaries at the time in Europe, we jetted off on our honeymoon to the Red Sea in Egypt, sort of the European version of Cancun or for the Americans. It was a great week in the sun, at the beach, exploring the pyramids and the Nile on some day trips too. And after a wonderful week away, we headed back to our new home together in Slovenia. There were some delays with our departure, I kind of remember, but eventually we made it out and flew back toward Europe. As we made our approach to landing, there were the typical preparation instructions. Please stow your carry-on luggage, fasten your seatbelts, make sure your tray tables are locked and your seats in the upright position, all the telltale signs of an imminent landing. We complied and we made ready. And as we made our final descent and were just about to touch down on the red runway, something was not right. The pilot, instead of touching down, put the pedal to the metal. He gassed it, he gunned it, and instead of slowing down on the runway, we headed back up again. G-forces and all, I remember, pushed back into our seats. It was pretty unnerving. Not sure what went wrong, they never told us. But it was not your regular landing. So we went up again and watched the airport grow smaller and smaller out the window, only to make a big circle and loop to come in to repeat the landing a second time. Now, on the second approach, we were all nervous, obviously, as I'm sure the pilot was too, and you could sense the anxiety in the cabin of everyone on the plane. Mine was pretty high too. I remember thinking, Lord, come on, I just got married, just a week now. I waited a long time for this. I really do not want it to end today on the runway in a pile of wreckage at the end of my honeymoon. So help the pilot out, will ya? Well, we made it down on the repeat landing. We could not get off that plane fast enough, but we were relieved and grateful. Grateful for the second go-around and that it was indeed successful. And Aaron and I were ready to move on and get started with the rest of our lives. Scripture reveals that God is the God of repeats. He knows our frame and that we do not always get it right the first time. Sometimes we need to loop around and try it again. He knows our tendencies and that sometimes we need some reinforcement. We call his repeats his grace, his mercy, his patience, his love, his goodness, his favor. But whatever we call it, we praise him that as he sees fit, he repeats for us when it's needed. We learn from our mistakes. We embrace the second chances. The greatest repeat, of course, came in the cross of Jesus Christ, that on our first attempt at life on our terms, we messed it all up, living in sin, separated from God. But when we encounter the cross and the forgiveness that Jesus brought and the new life of the resurrection that gives us a new lease on life, The chance to repeat life, but now under his lordship, with his power guided by his word, oh, how wonderful it is. If you have yet to begin again, tell the Lord now, I could really use a repeat. And if you are in a season of surrender, ask him to let you try once more. He just might, and it's very likely that he will agree to it for his own glory. So Lord, we praise you for being the God of second chances. Lord, we thank you that we no longer have to approach you based upon our own righteousness because one mistake and we would be finished for good. But Lord, you sent us your mercy in Jesus Christ, that he who knew no sin would become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And Lord, we stand before you today knowing that we all need a second chance. And you've extended to that to us, Lord, and we receive it by faith. 
Now, God, give those around us the opportunity to hear the gospel, to receive the gospel. And Lord, we look forward to your imminent return. And we ask that we would repeat your story and your words over and over again until you come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.